0: the Lonely Office, your playbook for navigating the messy line between work and life. Our topics are sourced from real anonymous workplace conversations happening within Glassdoor communities. From getting fired for being pregnant, which is insane, to getting hired at a quote-unquote evil corporation, we discuss timely work-life issues so you don't have to brave the professional world alone. Hey Aaron, I got a story for you this time. You got a story for me? Okay, I'm ready. A buddy of mine in the tech space, his wife works in healthcare and she's a physician assistant.
1: Wait a second. Isn't that what your wife does too?
0: Yeah, let's just ignore that fact. He sees her after work slaving away on the notepad, writing these notes. And he's like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm writing these soap notes, medical notes that I have to do for every patient encounter I have. The next day, he thinks about the problem some more. He's like, well, maybe I can use chat GPT to solve this thing. So he builds out a few prompts. Types them into ChatGPT and boom, it works. That evening, he describes it to his wife and gives her the login to ChatGPT for. So three weeks go by. All of a sudden, one work day, he gets a frantic call from his wife. What's up? What's going on? She's like, I need you to log me in. Like, what are you talking about? I need you to log me into ChatGPT. It stopped working. And so, of course, he hands it over to her and she gets through the day. That's a story. (laughs) That's the whole thing. (laughs) Is this a story
2: about your wife? Bro, you are the worst storyteller. That's not a story. That's just that's oh, provided some facts. No arc, no development. It was good. No tension, was-
1: nothing. Before we get started today, why don't we introduce our special guest? Man, really glad to have him back on the show. Oh, Azhar,
0: Azhar is back. Azhar Usman, everyone, What's up? welcome back, man. What's up? We have to give you a good intro. I think last time. We got teased for giving a terrible intro to Leia and that was like unacceptable. So Azhar Usman, standup comedian, writer on the acclaimed show Mo on Netflix and Rami on Hulu, former entrepreneur, former lawyer, gave it up, all of it to become a comedian, a movie producer as well.
2: I mean, I
1: think you hit on all of it. was that all right?
2: It's always weird to be the person introduced, right? You know, what am I going to say? Like, yeah, you didn't mention my accomplishments, man. I also toured with Dave Chappelle for 10 years. If you asked ChatGPT to write a bio of me, he <laughs> would probably
1: not leave out those top-level details. I wanted to start off painting a quick picture when we hear ChatGPT, and even from your story, right? It makes me think about a future, two possible futures, actually, like a fork in the road. And one road, it's a future where AI is integrated into our experience. It's more benevolent. It works with us, right? It's a partnership. Then there's another road in which it looks more like the matrix, where we're freaking batteries, and they've taken over. There was something that you started with, Matt. There was a question. You said you should ask any of these type of friends if they're using ChatGPT.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. So I think with most technologies, whether they're software or even hardware-based, there's always early adopter audience or a group of folks who are most impacted by it that see kind of the, the writing on the wall before everybody else does. One good analogy here is for those folks who were in the healthcare space when coronavirus came out, they had a whole two-week kind of head start on most of us. A lot of the alarmist bells coming out on Twitter and in media or just amongst your friends were from these folks. And I think similarly with Chat GPT, the sense for a lot of those professionals in tech Primarily engineers, data scientists, there's this overwhelming sense that we're on the precipice of a fundamental shift in the human work economy, precipitated by the innovation that ChatGPT 4 is, and just by how good large language models have become to answer your questions in a humanistic way that's actually incredibly accurate. And the first use case amongst the many use cases, I know I opened up with the story of my buddy and his wife is a physician. That's a real use case. There are nurses and billing clerks and physician assistants using right now ChatGPT4 to write their medical notes and in the process, probably saving five to 10 hours a week on that. But the most potent use case are engineers. If you have an engineer friend, if you were to ask them right now, are you using it? Assuming they're entry or mid-level, the answer will be yes, they are. And how much they're using it is just a function of how honest they want to be honestly. Hey, I've, I'm actually using this to save 10 hours of coding time. And in some cases, shipping code, that I don't even understand how it works. But I know it works because I prompt chat GPT, I get the code, I compile it, I run it, and it works. So I know it works. Or when it doesn't work, I take the errors and I I ask chat GPT to fix it, it fixes the code for me, I compile it, and I run it, and then it works after that. This is happening. And that is in many ways the early adopter audience or population for this thing. We're seeing the writing on the wall or what, kind of what's
1: coming. With that coding and engineering, friend? how many hours could you just guess would it actually be helping with? Because you said like 10, but I mean, is there a case? Easily. I mean, easy, but is there a case where we're talking like half their workload, maybe more? Right. Well,
0: look, one of the biggest contributors of the open source code website, one of the biggest contributors, user-generated contributor that came out and had a public post on Twitter and LinkedIn where he's saying, hey, basically, I'm becoming obsolete, which is hilarious a bit because here's like a power social media user, in this case, is answering the coding questions or the software questions of engineers. He's saying that I'm becoming obsolete because so you can literally ask chattp 4 and it'll answer your question faster, exponentially faster, let's put it that, than the answer you'd get from a human-powered network. And so this is being adopted across engineering circles. I think the whole term co-pilot is a euphemism of sorts. So I think as humans, we like to think that these powerful tools will be assistants and co-pilots, but any engineer who's honest sees this thing, uses this thing in its current raw form, knows damn well a year from now, two years from now, this is not a co-pilot. This is the pilot, at least in the engineering sphere. And I don't think that's controversial to say. I think it would be controversial to say it in other spheres and other verticals. But even then, those other verticals, not too far off, I think just its impact on the workforce is kind of what a lot of the folks who are seeing this now makes them really excited, but really nervous.
1: Azhar, so Matt's talking about engineers. In your circle, what are you seeing in terms of people who have that co-pilot are utilizing it and it's helping them? Are there examples of where it's like they're starting to fear people around you of that word that you said, Matt, which is like obsolete. What kind of experiences and things are you seeing around you in in your circles? To be honest with you, what I have noted, and I'm somebody
2: who works in entertainment, in the media as a domain or an industry, but I maintain a pretty healthy interest in what's happening in tech, more so than the average person in, in entertainment. And I would say that Around me, among comedians, among other artists I know, screenwriters, directors, the overriding sentiment is just like, I hate AI art. This AI art and all the AI generative art happening, like, I just hate it all. And they they feel a lot of solidarity with visual artists who are complaining about their original works are often being gobbled up by these huge models and then being incorporated in this, Generative AI art, and artists are feeling like they're not being properly compensated, credited, acknowledged. So there's a lot of anti-AI sentiment among, let's call it the artist community in general. And so what I've basically found is either people are not really following these developments as closely as they probably should be, or if they are at all, they just have a general anti-AI sentiment. It's more like either they just hate it or they feel a lot of fear that it may eliminate their jobs.
0: Is it the fear that's driving that or is it more anger, right? Where it's like their creative works are being fed into these large language models. I mean, I think it was even the news where Reddit and News Corps, a number of publishers approached OpenAI and asked them, Hey, like, are you using our stuff? And if you are, you know, pony up.
2: This is turning into one of these weird Satoshi Nakamoto type situations, like, what the hell actually happened? My understanding is open AI was initially a non-profit that Elon Musk donated, that's what I read, $100 million of his own money to it when it was nonprofit, profit Along with other entrepreneurs. Along with a bunch of other people, yeah, a bunch of other found, co-founders. But then somewhere along the way, somehow Microsoft Corporation, a publicly traded company, for-profit business, somehow purchased the exclusive rights. Now it's a for-profit business suddenly? Like, what happened?
0: Yeah. So what happened was, it just became too computationally expensive for this nonprofit OpenAI to operate their large language models at scale and service a user base that grew to 100 million monthly active users really quickly on the back of ChatGPT 3.5. And so the cost of the servers,
1: the cost of the infrastructure the hardware was exorbitant a nonprofit couldn't support that. Our session producer Ken actually just fed this into ChatGPT. So here's what ChatGPT says: OpenAI is an artificial intelligence research laboratory consisting of the for-profit OpenAI LP and the nonprofit OpenAI Inc. The largest investor in OpenAI LP is Microsoft, which invested one billion in the company in 2019, making it the biggest shareholder in OpenAI LP. OpenAI Inc. is a separate entity and is governed by its own board of directors. It is supported by donations from a range of philanthropic corporate donors, including Microsoft. That's what it spit back. The fact that this whole technology is becoming so
2: powerful and influential and important so fast, and even something as simple as like, who owns this thing, is shrouded in mystery to me is just like adding fuel to the fire around the fears the hype that had already been built around crypto and web3 and all these hollywood celebrities and whatnot starting to get into co-signing nft projects and all that that whole nft craze and bubble that we witnessed right post pandemic all that hype seems to have been kind of like the misdirect the real story all along was ai and chat gpt The promise of like how rapidly this technology would come into our lives and start to just disrupt everything. I also, you know, happen to have been a lawyer. So I know lawyers who are finding ways to use ChatGPT to do like simple legal drafting and contract drafting and things like this. And as far as creative people that I know are concerned, I'll say this myself as a stand-up comedian. It's just, I feel no fear. Of ChatGPT or three, four, five. You can't write a joke, dog. You can't write a stand up comedy joke, ChatGPT. I'm sure it will do it. I'm sure people will go and watch it. And I'm sure that shit will be garbage. So I'm not worried about being out of a job as a creative writer or as a creative person or as a comedian. Because a robot can somehow regurgitate old jokes that it's been trained on a model because it listened to 100,000 hours of standard. But whatever the hell the threat is, to me, it's all fake news.
0: I just inputted into ChatGPT, can you tell a funny joke about ChatGPT taking over people's jobs? And it came up with this following one. Why did ChatGPT get fired from its job as a bartender? Because it kept giving customers infinite loops instead of drinks.
1: <laughs> Boo. Boo. He's, Boo. He's not laughing. I'm
0: booing this fucking garbage. And then just to follow up, how about one about stand up comedians? Certainly, here's a joke for you. Why did the stand up comedian go to the doctor? Because he was suffering from a severe case of punchline phobia.
2: Boo. <laughs> Boo. You suck. You suck.
1: Keep your day job, Chad GPT, disintermediating other professions. You suck at comedy. Let me just rip through some of these jobs that Business Insider says that in the moment are going to be the first to kind of go. And we've already talked about Matt's story, physician assistant. The first one is tech jobs. So Matt, tech jobs, coders, computer programmers, software engineers, data analysts, media jobs, advertising, content creation, technical writing, journalism. Was ChatGPT going to be on the scene asking the tough questions? Next one, legal industry jobs, paralegals, legal assistants. just you brought that up. Market research analysts, teachers, finance jobs, financial analysts, personal financial advisors, traders, and graphic designers, accountants, and customer service agents. Any of those surprising at all in the moment for both of you? So stand-up comedians is not on that list. Yeah, and neither is storyteller. So Azhar, we're safe.
2: (laughs) The real conundrum that I think we're all wrestling with is, is there a scenario where we can actually, to put it in your framework, Aaron, shepherd ourselves as a species down, more down the Star Trek route, or are we just damned from the beginning to end up becoming batteries in the Matrix? That's the gazillion dollar question, as far as I'm concerned. But do we even have to
0: leap there? I think when looking at this thing, it's very tempting to just flip the pages of the book to the last chapter, and try to come to a conclusion of, in an existential way almost, whether this thing is beneficial or harmful for human life. If you just look at the few roles and professions this thing is already dramatically impacting, like I said, the writing's on the wall for many, many others. It's really easy to see, just from a geo-economic perspective, like for the U.S., what the implications are, right? I think there's 2 million bachelor degree college grads every year. If you're a bachelor degree college grad, what are you doing? I remember what I did. I went in and I did roles very similar to summarization and documentation, everything that you don't want to be doing later in your midlife career, but you do it early. The perfect stuff for something like ChatGPT to completely just take over and make obsolete. And so the implications are we're probably only a few years away from a lot of companies not having that same need they currently have for these entry-level workers. And I'm talking about knowledge professionals. I don't think we're prepared for something even as small as that. Even something as small as what does it mean to go from 60% right now labor force participation amongst the young demographic in this country to like 40% or to 30% because of this technology. What does that mean? You know, what
2: do they do? Well, I'll tell you what they do. They, they, they get high on marijuana and they, they play video games <laughs> and they live off of universal basic income. No, that's what's coming. We don't want to admit it. Like one of my, there's a comedian called Joe Noodleman. Shout out Joe Noodleman, hilarious young comedian in Chicago. He wrote one of my favorite stand up premises I've ever heard in my life. And he was just like, every year they always publish this, you know, unemployment report. And when the unemployment numbers go up, people always complain like, oh my God, there's more unemployment. And he's like, I don't understand that. I think we should be pushing for 100% unemployment. Like, isn't the point, let the robots do what we're making them to do, which is the work, so that we can all just live our lives and be human beings who are not slaves to working all day. It's actually kind of beautiful that technology is finally allowing humanity to let the whole ship run, the whole system can run without everyone having to be slaves and cogs in this machinery. I think that's the artist use saying that. No, no, because I'm not saying that, look, if a universal basic income were offered, I'm not saying everybody would take it or should take it. People who want to work and be useful in their lives and be productive and add value doing various things should and will continue to be able to do that. This whole notion that we've constructed all of modern civilization, like, you have to work X number
1: of hours to get this fake thing called money to then pay for all your thing is ridiculous. Let me maybe bring in a different voice, even though he's not joining us on the podcast, but Noam Chomsky, right, wrote that op-ed in the New York Times. From what I gathered, Chomsky is saying is it's an extremely long road. I don't think it's going to click over. I think there's going to be and could be a tremendous amount of pain in that intermediate space, right? Right. Look, I mean, this
0: doesn't even seem to be much on the radar of the government, and maybe for good reason. I mean, we have a war going on in Ukraine, and we have on the precipice of perhaps a recession, and... It seems like 101
2: problems and AI 8.1. <laughs> I believe you mean 99 problems, I believe. <laughs> Not 101. So 101 deviations, 99 problems.
0: <laughs> 99 problems and <in> AI 8.1. <laughs> and the problem with that is, though, it becomes a problem really fast, right? So if you look at the pace of change that this technology has seen, just from ChatGBT version 3 to version 3.5, to version four, there's been exponential improvements in a matter of months, right? So between 3.5 version and four, which was just November, we did a show on this topic in November. And now here we are in March, end of March. This thing went from 10th percentile on the bar exam to 90th percentile. And just go down the list of standardized skill performance exams. And it's done that same leap in three months. What's version 4.5? What's version 5? What's version 6? So the skill of change here is exponential, and I don't think folks really grasp that. And that's why this needs to be thought of, because it can cause a lot of upheaval. By the way, the, the Noam Chomsky quote, if I could just throw it in here, it's hilarious one. Maybe even a little background, Aaron. Noam Chomsky, well-known for being, these days, more for his political opinions, and we're not here for the politics of it. But the thing is, the guy is a well-respected cognitive scientist, incredibly well-respected linguist. Ultimately, that's why they gave him this cover, this op ed cover in New York Times. And his quote was the human mind is not like Chat GPT. It's a lumbering statistical engine for pattern matching, gorging on hundreds of terabytes of data and extrapolating the most likely conversational response or most probable answer to a question.
1: That's why Asar didn't laugh at its joke. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I know I was being kind of facetious when I was saying, "haha, your jokes suck, you know, ChatGPT is not funny. I'm also aware that that's version 3.0, 3.5, 4.0. This thing is closing in on us very fast. One thing I want to share about which one of those two versions, the symbiotic Star Trekian version of reality versus the antagonistic Ex Machina freaking uh, Matrix Robocop version that, that turns on us. There's this great phrase, like the ghost in the machine. It's a great reference. Maybe people are familiar with this. It's this idea that like, somehow there's this intangible life force inhabiting technology. My point is simply, if this AI has a mind of its own and has its own independent will and intelligence, I do think that there's going to be a war of machines against humanity and we're probably going to lose that war.
0: Right. That's a big leap. Just to kind of carry off the Larry last statement you said, which is if this thing has its own independent free will and mind of its own, the first step the data science community would say towards a higher level of intelligence is calling it artificially generally intelligent or artificial general intelligence. And I, I think that the creators of this thing, ChatGPT and these large language models, still don't lay claim to that.
2: Well, they don't, but they also have a lot of weird things that have happened that they can't explain. Like, I'm sure you've heard the story of the, the AI starts communicating in its own language and they had to shut the whole thing
0: down. And- they can't explain it. The scientists in that community, they, they do explain it. It's a bit of a, a hallucination, which is just a term. And it's funny, like, it's anthropomorphizing this thing. This whole thing is probability-driven. You're going to occasionally get associations, because that's what this is, associationism. And, and Chomsky even talks about this in an article. You're going to get associations that don't quite hit And the way that joke didn't quite hit with you on Infinite Loops. But where's the line? Because it's one thing for the data science and the techie community to say, hey, the line of danger or the line of threshold is when it becomes AGI. That's their line. But I think what's more important here is not the the scientific community's line. The more important thing here is what humanity's line is. And that's going to be very personalized. That's going to be different for everyone. In some cases, it's going to be, hey, when this thing can be like Shakespeare, in other cases... It's going to be, hey, when this thing displaces me economically because I identify who I am by my job, the line doesn't have to be AGI. The line could be far below that and still have dramatic
1: implications and impact to a swath of people. The line that Matt's talking about is, I think, really important because some of the things, the prognostications and the things that you're talking about only exist or can happen if those lines are crossed or blurred. I sit back and I'm like, you know, right now I'm not too worried about ChatGPT because it's more of a helper. Last year I looked at the hours that I gave my brother, who's my primary freelancer as a writer. His hours have gone down so far this year. And a lot of that's because that first draft work or even just editorial stuff, not creative writing, not, but the architecture, the stuff, the gunk, you can substitute in an artificial intelligence. I've seen the real world implications where it's like, shit, I feel best, my home brother, but like, sorry, bro, you're getting less hours because it's saving me money. For me, where the line is when I start getting scared that I'm not going to be hanging out with Picard and I'm going to be with Neo is when the humanities become breached. That's a personal thing. If I can't tell the difference between AI creating a story, telling a story, and me, there
0: were some shitty jokes, right? But having kind of a decent understanding of the way this thing works and the data it was pre trained on, I'm not surprised, right? So, first off, you know, the majority of the data does not include the best of Carlin and Pryor and Seinfeld. Like they have not fine tuned this large language model on the best comedians out there. And it'd actually be a very interesting and curious project to do just that. And you can do that with ChatGPT right now For with their API. You can literally take it and you can fine-tune the LLM off a a clean set of data that you would then provide. But we're not far away from getting a funny joke in the style and in the spirit and maybe indistinguishable from a Carlin or a Pryor or a Seinfeld. And on the one hand... You might be like, wow. On the other hand, you'd be like, well, not really. This thing is derivative. It's just, to Chomsky's point, His article, his rant, was that, look, this thing is not causal. It's not creating anything. It's a master pattern recognizer. And as a result, if you feed it enough patterns of the type and of the quality, eventually it's going to get that for you. So I actually think you're going to be surprised, Azhar.
2: Yeah, know I, I will not be surprised. In fact, on the contrary, I fully expect this to happen because the rise of artificial intelligence to me, fits perfectly with the rise of fake everything. We have fake everything. Facebook is fake friends. Crypto is fake money. Porn is fake love. This is the world we are living in. It's the 21st century. The idea that there will be artificial intelligence, intelligence itself is now fake, and it will be virtually indistinguishable from the truth. To me, that is actually the Exactly what I believe also philosophically and religiously. And by the way, look, Elon Musk putting $100 into open AI when it was nonprofit and also going on record talking about, bro, I met with every single lawmaker who would sit down and meet with me trying to sound the alarm saying we must take legal control over AI because it's moving too fast. And if we don't get ahead of this thing, it's going to become too late. His analogy, he said, it's like seatbelts. It took the pro-seatbelt advocates a lot of time to finally get the automobile industry to relent and start putting seatbelts in cars. Because why? It's just a
1: big cost to change their production process. Is there any way in which we can get a hold in this relatively early phase? And there can be some governance here. Is the cat already out of the bag in the sense that we can't get a handle? And I say we the collective way.
0: They're working on this a bit. So to be fair, so they call it in the, again, the data science community calls it the alignment problem. And I think I mentioned it prior, so I started reading a book on this by Brian Christensen, a really good summary. The innovation that OpenAI has done above all else, aside from the transformer infrastructure that was necessary to actually process these billions and billions of parameters, aside from that was actually human feedback, right? So they have, part of this is is the real human feedback loop that's in this training where they have humans that come and rate, essentially, the quality of answers that different props generate. And that those ratings, those real human ratings, feed the future results and train this neural network. And so the humans you're using in this loop to provide these ratings are one way to steer this, meaning depending upon who you're getting to rate this thing and the ratings they provide, you can steer towards a different future, right? Both from a, something as mundane as political bias. And I think everybody complained by chat GPT 3.5, apparently if you prompted it with Donald Trump versus Biden, and it didn't say anything inherently because of some of the humans who were in the loop <laughs> and, and the way they were rating answers. And so they've actually, to their credit, tried to solve or resolve, I should say, some of that bias, but it's impossible. Bias exists. You're not going to do it. You're not going to solve it. But, yeah, they call this the alignment problem. I think when it comes to organizations that mature, like OpenAI, yeah, I think they're decently dependable. The fact that they're pretty transparent, they publish this stuff. I'm scared, honestly, of probably a near-term future where you have other players outside of OpenAI, right? Like, rougher players who perhaps haven't made it yet and are unscrupulous and trying to innovate their way to becoming a unicorn, And, you know, doing pretty much what you'd expect in a capitalist market to do once you unleash the private markets on this thing and everybody building their own LLMs. That's, I think, when you you become scared.
2: By the way, I'm not even just talking about what you're alluding to, which is let's call them shady business ventures or whatever. I'm talking about just straight up hackers and terrorists, paramilitary groups and people who are basically troublemakers and can use this software and this technology to come up with any number of evil uses. Fraud, theft, you know, it's like the old Nigerian
1: princes, but now they have Chad GPT-4. Well, and they're ahead of the game. We won't say their name. One of the clients we work with in the podcasting space, they're a cybersecurity firm, a big one. They're already talking about that, where hackers are utilizing it to be able to write code and things like that. You hope that those people setting the rules have some sort of an ethical System in which they're building the rules on this whole idea that things are safe because it's in the hands of three
2: tech monolithic. Oh, I just hope that the (laughs) ones. I'm just telling you, it's very telling for him to go on Rogan talking about. I tried to get these lawmakers to understand the risks inherent in the rise of AI and AGI, and these idiots are asleep. They are asleep at the wheel. These politicians are dumb. They represent us. We are a dumb species. We're a dumb culture. We Netflix and chill and watch soft porn and pay money for it. So why are we pretending that we don't know how the story ends?
0: But you can take that rant and you can replace AI with climate change. Yeah. These are all happening all at the same time. I hear you on a lot of this stuff, but... We don't have the benefit any of one of us. This is like a Milan Kundera quote of having lived a previous life to know what to expect to come or where to place our bets. I tend to think that humanity has better intentions generally, and if they're going wrong on AI, I think it's like enamorment, right? I mean, the history of our literature, starting with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, is humans wanting to create the gods of their own, and and I almost feel like our desire to see this thing to its fruition even if it's the end of our superior race or whatever you want to call it, it's because it's just tied into perhaps the way we view ourselves, our id, our ego, who we think we are on this human race. I do think what you're going to see is like eventually you will see governance come into play. You will see the government create a regulating body and you'll see a, a committee of some sorts, a national committee that has maybe Elon Musk, although just to be fair, I mean, I think Elon Musk does a ton of virtue signaling too. There's far more prominent data scientists in that community have been on the front line advocating.
1: Is it true intelligence? A lot of people are saying it's not. So I just want to ask you, is like, in the same way the joke wasn't that funny, in the same way where it's like, uh, it's it can't write this, what is it? Will it ever be true intelligence? Chomsky and these cognitive scientists and all the folks, they're the first one to say,
0: there's nothing causal here. It's derivative and it's statistical and it's probabilistic. In that sense, it will never be truly intelligent the way human is. But I would argue are we ourselves derivative, right? Like how much of our own knowledge is derivative? This is where I've gone full circle where it's like, okay, I'm not even gonna tackle that premise. I'm gonna tackle another premise, which is where does our knowledge come from? How do we learn? Do we ultimately parrot tens of thousands of variations of ideas and narratives and threads? And in that way, we're actually far similar to a large language model. And I don't know, I think someone like Chomsky says, no, we aren't because to his credit, and his research shows this, he studied the human brain far more and patterns amongst children, the way they pick up language. And he probably has, obviously has far more right to speak on the issue. But me personally, I sometimes wonder, I wonder how is it that we learn, right? Are we all that different? I feel sometimes a lot of what I've learned and what I say, even as I'm saying this, I'm not thinking about what I'm saying. It's just kind of flowing. It's quite conceivable that there's some something statistical in the word choice I have that goes one after another. And it's not necessarily preconceived with intention. I just want to make this point that we started this show with the intention of trying to really keep it grounded and talking about this phase one. But I think the very fact that we feel thrilled and excited to jump to phase two, phase three, I think is the point I was making. As a human race, we're just enamored with these ideas. It's, it's been bred in our literature. It's in our popular culture. And here, even on a show where we came with intention of speaking about and limiting ourselves to the phase one kind of, hey, what are the economic impacts of this? We just can't help ourselves. Like, we got to put our hands in the cookie jar and think about these existential scenarios because it's thrilling.
2: There's also no way around it because it is the inevitable implication of these technologies existing in our world. We have to confront these larger moral questions. I mean, we can't escape them. So it's nice to try to theorize and, and act like
1: this is all conceptual and hypothetical, but it's not. When we think about AI, when we think about robotics, technology, we're always facing these existential crises. We're always asking ourselves these questions. My dad recently had to have a really serious knee surgery, and and I don't think he realized how much reliance that surgeons placed on robotics and artificial intelligence. Many of them were just kind of monitoring and operating with sort of this template. And when they looked at his knee, they said that really wasn't going to be a great outcome because the robotics and the way that it would operate, it didn't have the ability to kind of move. It really didn't have the ability to play jazz, so to speak. And he ended up going to this old school surgeon who, when he walked into his office, he said, do you use robotics? He goes, no. And he said the same thing. He goes, I don't use that because they don't know how to play jazz. As the surgeon described it, there are moments that occur in the moment of surgery in which you have to make an instinctual choice. And so my dad ended up going with the guy who played jazz and he's has amazing recovery. So Matt, going back to your original story, right? Your friend's wife, physician assistant- she says, I can't do my job without this. Here's my question What does her relatively immediate future look like?
0: If we're looking at just literally a year, two year out, so let's not even look too far out. This thing is all about efficiency. Throw Chat GPT out, throw technology out of the equation for a second. What it is from an economic standpoint is just everybody's expected to become even more efficient. So when email came and the Blackberry and then your mobile phone, you were more available, you're sending more emails, you became more efficient. So there's gonna be an expectation of, hey, you know what? As if we're not all burnt out already and we're not already hyper-efficient, let's crank it up another notch or two because this Excel model, you get one hour to work on it now, not four hours because we know you can use AI. And I've even been telling this to my own folks, some of the juniors. I'm like, you have two choices. Either become an absolute whiz at the technologies that you do, whether it's Excel or creative writing, or become more efficient using AI. It's up to you. You can do each other one, but the job and your your bosses are going to expect you to ratchet up on the efficiency side. So that that's the first thing. And it's going to impact the physician assistant and the, the juniors more substantially than, I think, executives in the following way. And this is kind of a, a short-term future I'm a little scared of. So if you don't have the big tech companies, let's say 30% of your workforce are junior software engineers or entry level, a third of your company you effectively has no need for in a course of a few years, what do they do? Well, I think the answer is they become part of these innovation R&D units at these companies. So Google will now have a monstrous R&D innovation hub led by you know executives where these juniors now come in and feed into new ideas because creation and conceptualization is still something that takes some time for AI to catch up on. And I'm scared for startups in that scenario because startups rely on big companies to be dinosaurs. like That's what you bank on. You're like, hey, you know what? You're so slow. I'm going to literally quit this job, build this out, and then sell back to you in five years. And I've seen engineers do that. Well, that kind of equation is thrown out the window the moment this thing ships because all those entry-level, mid-level, junior-level, they're going to be repurposed for innovation and in R&D because they'll have no
2: need for them to do the mundane and the routine. So I just think that things are going to start moving very fast. I think that this is going to expedite the conversations around universal basic income because the robots are going to do their job and they are going to cause a lot of professions to simply become obsolete. And there's going to be a lot of workers who just have no place in the economy to add true value, but they still need to live. So what should happen to them? Well, probably the government should take care of them. They should smoke their marijuana and play video games and live in the metaverse. Like that's what they want to do anyway. Enjoy your life and enjoy your meta virtual life. And I'm trying to get with
1: these Amish over here. Hey, you made it. Thanks for tuning in to the Lonely Office. If you like what you heard, follow us on all major podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode and make sure and tap five stars and leave a review. I know everyone says it, but it actually helps others like you discover the show. Remember, the topics you hear us talk about on the show are sourced from Glassdoor communities, where professionals are having candid conversations about their careers anonymously with others in their industry. To be part of that conversation, Download the Glassdoor app. And when you're in the app, make sure and join the Lonely Office Bowl. That's where we are. When you're there, you can suggest a topic idea or an episode idea, or you can make it more formal and email us at thelonelyoffice at glassdoor.com. We'll catch you next time.